0: Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. As most of you know, Love Letters is also an advice column. And when I'm sick of myself and want to read somebody else's advice for wisdom, humor, empathy... I find myself turning to Ola Poppy, the advice column by John Paul Brammer. JP Brammer recently wrote a book about his life and his life as an advice columnist. It's called Ola Poppy: How to Come Out in a Walmart Parking Lot and Other Life Lessons. It is a perfect title. A while back, I was honored to moderate his book launch with Brookline Booksmith, one of my favorite Boston area bookstores. Here's a recording of that event. It's two advice columnists just trying to figure it all out together. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello. Hello, hello. Um, Thank you so much for joining us in Boston. And actually, everybody's probably all over, which is one of the wonderful things about online events is the accessibility of it all. And.
1: I feel like I'm in Boston.
0: Do you you, you feel like like Matt Damon? Do you feel like, what does that even mean at this point?
1: Mentally, I am here. I am among you in the city of Boston. Um, Thank you for welcoming me to your fair castle.
0: Well, uh, for those who don't know, well, first of all, um, we will be recording tonight for an episode of the Love Letters Advice Column Podcast, so I am deeply honored that so many more people um, will get to hear about this book and about you. And I just want to start, it's been very surreal to come up with questions for you because they're often questions I'm asked. And, and I care so much more about your version of it, which is, you know, listen, the people who write columns like this generally are not people who went to school for psychology and have four degrees in it, but they are people who have something in the middle of their Venn diagram. And I guess I wanted to ask you of your perspective, which is, you know, when you describe the kind of advice you give and what your mission is in a column that has taken many forms for you over a yeah. of time, you know, what would you say you're sort of like, I'm the kind of advice giver who is?
1: Yes, I would say I'm a very abstract sort of esoteric advice giver in that I see it as my primary duty to supply people with language and vocabulary to better understand their problem. So I'm not really ever seeking to solve the riddle or fix the jigsaw when I get a letter. I don't look at it like, okay, how do I fix this person's problem? I think more about how can I use language to tease out all the loose ends of this problem to sort of help them see it in a different way to sort of recontextualize this issue they're dealing with, because that is something that I do see as being more inside my uh, spectrum of abilities. I think that I'm not so great at like the whole break up with him, sis, type thing. Um, And, you know, sometimes it's so obvious that I get to do that. (laughs) Um, Probably the most uh, outrageous example of me doing that was the column where this one guy's boyfriend, it turns out he was pretending to be Colombian for the duration of their relationship and he didn't find out until he went home for thanksgiving and he found out that his entire family his boyfriend's whole family was not colombian whatsoever was not even latino in any sort of way and he was like um this strikes me as a red flag what should i do and i was like oh cool i get to use the the hammer (laughs) finally (laughs) but most of the time, you know, I, I get to be a little bit more out there with my approach to my columns, which I really appreciate.
0: I was just thinking of the, I was rereading a, a fairly recent column where someone was embarrassed about past choices and past behavior. And you, you mm-hmm. basically say, it's okay, it's okay, unless you voted for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, there we go. That is true.
1: Good old Poppy with his topical references.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There it is, there it is. Um, uh, You know, for those who don't know, I came to you for advice a few years ago, it must've been pre-pandemic because NPR's Life Kit podcast asked me to do an episode about how to give advice. They do a lot of how-tos and you were the first person I thought of. I was like, well, the person that I would want to tell me how to give advice is you. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are not naturally good at this. And just to sort of start off, I got a lot of tips for empathy from reading the book and obviously from reading your column. What do you tell people who want to know how in the real world can I be better at advising my friends, the people I care about? You do this without judgment and it's not easy.
1: You know what's funny about that is that I don't know if I'm necessarily the best advice giver off the page. So when I am given a letter and I open the Google Doc to answer it, I almost feel like I have access to this litany of abilities that I just don't have out in the real world because that's where I'm confident. When I have a blank page in front of me and I can make of it whatever I want to make of it, it activates my brain in a way that it just is not activated when I'm just out and about being my regular self. Um, And also the poppy voice is very much an outcome of sort of embracing parts of my personality that I don't normally get to show off in mixed company. Um, Because the Poppy voice is very much a cartoon. He's very confident. There's a lot of playing around with the fourth wall. Um, There's a lot of playing around with form and structure. And these are all things that are very much present in the written word. And I've always found it much easier to communicate my thoughts by writing them out than just by talking about them or in a conversation with a friend. So it's almost like me being an advice giver is just one of those things that can only happen under certain circumstances. Like when my friends ask me, um, for advice in their real issues and they text me about it, you know, I do my best, but it's no Ola Poppy column. It's not like anyone's going to walk away being like, wow, that was profound. I'm just like, oh, that sucks, man. I'm here for you. <laughs>
0: That, well, so when we spoke uh, during the Life Kit interview, the book was on the horizon. And oh. it's a daunting thing, right, to, I mean, this is essay, this is memoir, this is so much, you giving the gift of yourself, right? And I wondered when you went into this book project, if you sort of knew what you were going for and and just how that, because I, I see some very strong and beautiful themes throughout everything you've written. How did that come together for you? What did you want to put out? Yeah.
1: It was very easy for me because I just wanted to honor the way I went about making Papi and making Papi the book and Papi the column started out as sort of an anti-column in that it was supposed to be a parody satire of an advice column. It was the joke was supposed to be what if Dear Abby was on Grindr and what if she was like a Mexican gay man? <laughs> that was the joke, and it was only supposed to be me making fun of the generic kind of old school advice column and that really authoritative voice that's supposed to tell you how to live, uh, it quickly stopped being that within one or two columns because I was just like, my goodness, as I say in the book, I can't just keep reading these heartfelt letters, people offering a very intimate slice of their life to me and just you know putting on my jester hat and making my jokes throughout the whole thing. I had to be like, okay, it's time to take this seriously. But I wanted to respect that original sort of DNA that Olapapi the column had that made it so successful because I was able to make a lot more jokes, inject a lot more humor, and play around a lot more because of its origins in grinder and because I wanted it to be funny. So I was like, Olapapi worked because it started out as an anti-advice column. What if my memoir was an anti-memoir? And so what if the whole theme was looking back at my previous experiences in life and questioning the narratives I had built around them and the way I understand them. So it's sort of, instead of saying, this is what happened to me, saying, this is what I think happened to me, and here's why thinking about it that way maybe wasn't the best thing. <laughs> um, so it sort of gives advice in that way and it gives wisdom in that way, but also bucks some conventions in some interesting moments.
0: It does, and I, I, you know, as I was reading it for a second time, Um, it's a really good book to read twice because it's like you can appreciate it and then you appreciate the sentences. (laughs) I actually was telling a few friends, I'm like, this is a really good graduation gift book, which is not what I, you know, it's like a book simultaneously for I'm 43, right? And it felt very relevant to me, but um, the reframing of, of coming of age stories I thought was just significant. Um, But before I keep going, I would be so honored if you read a little bit. uh, Yes, absolutely. Can you read us something and tell us, give us a little context.
1: So I'm going to read from my favorite chapter, which is How to Fall In and Out of Love. It's my favorite because I've always struggled with Describing love, which to me is this very sappy, syrupy, kind of sugary thing. And I tend to eschew those things because it's hard to make that funny. When something horrible happens to me, I have an instinct to be like, ha, here's how I can laugh about it. Um, when something <laughs> good is happening to me, I'm like, that's not so funny. No one wants to hear that, man. You're just bragging. But the context for this chapter is I met this guy, this real cowboy type guy in Austin, Texas, when I was interning there for the Austin Film Festival. And we fell into a really romantic relationship, a really intense one-week thing where we saw each other every single day. And then I had to move back to Oklahoma, and we started drifting apart. And the moment I'm reading from is when we first reunite after being away from each other for quite a long time, and me sort of hoping that things will reignite, but kind of not finding that happening. (laughs) Um, And the context uh, for the book here is... Each chapter is set up like an advice column. So that's all signed off by a name. So this one is signed loveless. So if you hear me say loveless, I'm addressing someone's name. Um, Didn't want to confuse you. So um, good to see you. Good to see you. I said, ashamed of my own eagerness in the face of his apathy. Are you all right? You're limping. Yeah, he said, got into a fight. He said it so simply, as if it were something I should have guessed. "'Did you win?' I asked. "'No,' he said. He told me things hadn't really worked out with the other guy he'd been seeing, but that was fine. "'Cause he wasn't really interested in seeing anyone,' he said. He hadn't told anyone else he was gay since we'd last seen each other. He didn't feel he needed to. He said all these things with a callous boredom. "'Pointed,' I thought, at my silly idea of meeting up again. "'I see,' I repeated.' reduced to an idiot who only said one thing. I see. Well, he said, "Food still on his plate. I better get going soon. Yeah, I said, wondering who this person was. Same here. It was a feeble attempt at saving face, at pretending I hadn't wanted anything in particular. I got up and, feeling drunk but sober, wobbled along in front of him to the exit. A terrible possibility was unfolding in front of me. Well, it was nice to see you. He said, somewhat kinder than before, perhaps apologizing in a small way for not caring. Yep, I said, afforded me. I walked the other way, pretending that was where i had parked, and left him. After I'd made some distance on the sidewalk, I saw him limping off in final mockery of everything I'd held onto so childishly over the past year. I ducked into an antique store, unwilling to face the world after such an utter humiliation, and sequestered in a corner under a heap of knickknacks, I cried into my hands. The terrible possibility was that maybe the Thomas I'd been so enamored with hadn't really gone away. It could very well have been that he'd never existed in the first place. This Thomas, the haggard one with bloodshot eyes and no warmth to spare, had been the same Thomas from that summer. Maybe love, or its evil sibling, Infatuation, had made him something else in my eyes. When I thought about it, really thought about it, what had been his defining features? What had his personality really been? Who had he been other than a man who had excited me? And what if it wasn't Thomas I'd been missing all this time? What if it had been the act of loving, the moving through life while loving, the way of seeing myself while loving, the splendid shapes love makes of the world, the way it takes the mundane and twists it into something altogether worthier? He's probably in his car now, driving back to some house I'd never seen, to a life I actually knew next to nothing about, and never would, and all the things he knew about me, my favorite songs, the parts of my body I didn't like that were more sensitive or ticklish, the stories about my family and about Oklahoma, things that had once added up to something special, potent trappings of an interesting person worth getting to know, were now reduced to trivia. I hardly cared about them myself in that light. I took a night drive through Austin, indulging in the exquisite, gentle pangs of nostalgia. There was Barton Springs. There was the grocery store. Where was Dave? And there was the house, the plum-colored door with the oak leaf knocker, the only thing that had remained more or less the same, a faithful friend. I drove by the film festival office and its cage full of scripts. I had a notion then, one that made me feel a little better and one that has stuck with me over the years, a new way to look at memory. What if, loveless, memory is an act of creation? Our brains don't hold perfect records of the things that have happened, a Rolodex we can cycle through and call upon for official accounts. Maybe remembering is the same thing as imagining. Maybe I had imagined Thomas. Imagine a man who would love me so that I could love myself. Imagine a story wherein a handsome stranger had fallen into my lap one summer and made life worthier of living. But then, no, not quite. Not perfectly quite. There had been some, something real about Thomas, about the whole thing. It hadn't been exactly as I remembered, but that didn't negate everything I felt, everything I knew to be true. My question, then, now that it was good and over, was, could it be enough? And the chapter gets a little bit um, happier towards the end, but that's the parts uh, describing heartbreak as it unfolds and all the things that you, all the questions you're left with about why it didn't work out or what happened there. Um, yeah, it's it's a chapter I really like to <laughs> revisit.
0: I mean, it's a it's a gorgeous chapter, and and as a reader, I was so incredibly invested in this relationship and just the the sort of validation of love returned when it matters and, yeah. and there, there are so many beautiful stories like this, but, you know, there are, to me, this idea of, you know, past relationships and contextualizing them as, mm-hmm. as we get older and get wiser, maybe sometimes, um, runs in, in parallel to this idea of identity. Yeah. And I say, this is like, someone who used to memorize how to do the dreidel game when I was a kid because I was not Jewish enough to know, but I was the only (laughs) So like my mom would be like, we got to figure this out every year. Like like cram for the test. And that feeling of not being enough, of not being all the things you are enough, um, not being yourself enough is is a relatable, universal um, theme that runs through this book and also seems just just very important and yeah. um i you know i always wonder with writers as they walk into this do they know that, that this is a is it something a discovery they make along the way or all of these ways where i see you as this full dynamic main character taking hmm. me through these stories in, in in these essays and yet so often you are saying well am i am i truly this am i yeah. imposter syndrome of life, of living. So I I wonder when that clarity happened for you about such an important theme, I think we've all felt.
1: Yeah, I think that as a writer, I'm extremely interested in craters. So this idea that something happens and takes something away from you and leaves a dent, and it's sort of your job to fill it with something. And I really enjoy writing about loss. I enjoy writing about knowing that you had something at one time and then it went away or wondering what else is going to sort of come along and fill the gap for you. And I enjoy it so much because I think there's a lot of treasure and texture to be had in writing about the absence of something rather than writing about a thing itself Um, that's very present in the Mexican-American chapter where it's just sort of like, you know, not having Spanish, not having recipes, feeling like you're not something enough and that you're supposed to be someone else and looking for the thing, be it the object, for the the language, the memories, the experience, the people who you just think are supposed to be there and that will make everything right for you. But the more you put into it, the more you realize it doesn't work that way. Um, I really enjoy stories like that. And I, I think it's because... I have, I won't say a poor understanding of who I am. I think I have a a really good understanding of what I am in as much as I understand that no one fully gets who they are. (laughs) We never really are at perfect peace with our identities. We're never at perfect peace with the world around us because we are constantly shifting and so is the world. So how are we expected to ever have a sort of rigid static hold on anything that we can identify with or anything that we can use to describe ourselves? The reality is that we don't. Um, and that turbulence produces a lot of rhythm to me and it produces a lot of fun words for me. And that's just how I approach things. So in admitting that I don't have the answers and admitting that my identities are all very unstable and subject to change, I think it gives me a lot of freedom to write the good stuff that I like to write. (laughs)
0: Um, there are a lot of chapters where there could be villains in the the book, uh, people who make the process of coming out truly frightening Mm-hmm. Whether it be emotionally or physically, there are people who don't see you for who you are, and yet there are no villains in this book. That mm-hmm. um, you, there is a great kindness and empathy for people who, and humor. Um, you know, given to uh, the stories of people who really could have been portrayed very differently, um, yeah. and and it seems like who you are. Imagining that you know, there's a reason why people aren't kind. Right. And, and, but, um, you know, this is a two part question, but sort of, did that come in the writing process of, of like, there, there's this feeling of forgiveness of just like, actually, some of these people were awful, but, but there's probably reason. And also I have to wonder, there are a lot of people in this book who has had the chance to read it and who has contacted you
1: about reading it. So, When I'm writing about someone, the question of benevolence or forgiveness or kindness never enters the equation. I think it more represents the way I see human beings functioning through life, which is um, kind of due to their own motives, which are usually quite compelling because we're sort of, you know, the, the actions and decisions that we make in life, they have a lot of reasons behind them. And I think in acknowledging that, It just happens to create a very empathetic view of other people when I write it. So like when I'm talking about being bullied in my middle school by people who were afraid, people who wanted to fit in, people who had their own problems going on, that's not me sort of being really kind to them. I think that's just me telling the truth, which is that people can be horrible to you, but their reasons for doing so could be on its face, very empathetic or very understandable. Um, be it because of fear, be it because they didn't want it to happen to them, something they were dealing with in their own lives. Um, It's definitely not me saying like, these are good people or these are bad people, but they're just people. And we all (laughs) kind of act um, in similar ways. And of course, there's agency involved. And of course, there are some things that can't be forgiven or excused, but I'm not really doing that either. I'm just sort of trying to portray a reality, the way I experience the world and the way I see other people's actions sort of being motivated and the reason why they happen the way they do, the reason they're articulated the way they are. Um that being said, there were a lot of pieces in the book that made me very nervous for people to read about. Um primarily the title chapter, the um how to come out to your boyfriend in a Walmart parking lot, because that was a very intense, prolonged period of my life. And I knew that I couldn't just not write about it. It was something like four to five years of my life spent with this guy. Um, For those who haven't read the book, it's a chapter about um, my classmates in my broken down uh, high school where we really didn't have enough books or enough desks. (laughs) And this guy named Corey, he was part of this Christian youth cult and he made it his mission to convert me into it. And he was very persistent about it up to the point where I was like, okay, fine, let's just have some conversations about religion let's talk about it. And over the course of talking about it, not only did I sort of fall in love, but also he sort of fell out with the church. (laughs) Um, So it was a tug of war. But also um, over time, we started getting physical. We started being romantic a little bit. And I was so terrified for him to read it because I was like, he's going to think that I exposed him or he's going to think that I was unkind or that I'm spilling his secrets. (laughs) Um, And then yesterday, I get a text from him. And my heart just stops and I'm like, oh no, he read it. What is he going to say? And so with dread, I open it up and I read it. <laughs> and he's like, hey, bro, I really like that chapter about me. Remember when we used to jack off together? Ha ha ha. <laughs> and I was like, you're a cartoon. <laughs> you fool. Um, so I guess I had no reason to be nervous that whole time, but it was really eating at my heart. And then he was just like, yeah, pretty good. <laughs>
0: I mean, I'm relieved, but also I I have so many emotions.
1: (laughs) He he literally called me bro in it, which I was just like, there's just no way.
0: (laughs) I mean, based on the chapter, like it sort of fits, but, but still like just, um, wow. Okay. I, for those who haven't read the book yet, you can sit with that information and (laughs) and process it very differently than I I processed it. And, and, um. I'm so glad you chose that as the subtitle for the book because it is like a, a, such a pivotal moment and in, um, it's a, it's a, it's a beautifully written moment and that, that answer to that is, wow. Um, I want to remind everybody that at some point I'm going to switch to questions from the audience. So please leave your questions where it says Q and A, um, not in the chat, but where it says Q and A and I will get to questions. Um, so do not be shy. Um, so one of the questions I get a lot when I talk about being an advice column is about technology. And it's usually this like very blanket statement of like, is technology good or bad for dating or for people's brains? And, um, you know, and I'm always like, well, there's some good and there's some bad, but there's obviously no clear answer to that. But I found myself asking that question a little bit because you and I have an age difference enough that some of your, so many of your formative experiences include technology that, yeah. Didn't exist. I mean, you know, the, the negative of that is that I, you know, had so many gay friends who had no community online because there was no online, right? Like right. They, they only had like three people to look at and that was it. On the other hand, there was no Instagram. There was no cell phone photo. There was no, um, you know, you talk about, you know, the validation. I mean, the the book starts with this idea of sort of the, the attention you can get online. And I and I, yeah. I just sort of wonder when you're asked that very general question about your relationship to technology and advice and sort of what it can do to a person. Like, you know, what did you think about with that while writing the book? And, and even in your column, just, you know, um it, it it came up a lot for me as something to grow yeah. up with that is that is very different and has is even now so much more different for much younger people.
1: Yeah. Um, Ola Papi is definitely a product of the internet. I mean, Grindr is itself a fascinating technology in as much as it exists around so much of the world. And you can sort of, through this column being pushed through the app, connected me with people in countries and cultures that I have had zero contact with in my life, Um, which was wild to think about because it's just like, wow, someone on Grindr in like India could read my column and ask me a question. And that is such a Wild exchange to take place (laughs) in a media landscape. And I kind of come from a generation where, like, I just can't truly remember what life was like before the internet. It's just always sort of been around, and the technology has only been refined over time. And so, to me, it's one of those things where, like, if it was happening when you were a kid, it just feels like that's what normal is. (laughs) And so, it makes perfect sense for me that over time, our phones keep getting faster, our internet keeps getting better, there keep being more sites. and our brains are just continuing to rot <laughs> as a process. But it, it's it's so hard because obviously I wouldn't have any of the things that I have right now if it wasn't for technology. And my entire career is sort of um, resting on the idea that there was an internet to publish on. Because me getting into um, formal publishing, I always knew it was going to be a tough road even with the internet because I was just like, you know... I wasn't born into connections. I wasn't able to go to an internship on the coasts or anything like that. So I was like, how do I find my way in? And it was very much through social media. It was through refining a voice that I could use and writing on topics that were immediately available to me. And I think that those two things have really colored um, this book and a lot of my work. But at the same time, um, I struggle a lot with many aspects of technology, social media being the primary one, because it's just like, Sometimes I worry that I negotiate too much of my work with really bad faith critics that exist on social media who maybe don't even have a face or a name because I'm, I've just become very accustomed to this idea that there's this rampant culture of cruelty happening on the internet where it's just like people can just be horrible to you and you have very little to no recourse <laughs> in the face of something like that. And it's, it's terrifying. So I think, like you said, there's just no easy answers there when it comes to technology. But when it comes to my little piece of the puzzle, um, I do think that I have a really interesting life that's been shaped by a really unique sort of relationship to the internet, technology and social media. And partly I wanted to put a lot of that into this book, to put it out there, not necessarily to have a take on it, but just to show people like, look at this wild life that I've wrung out of the world due to being on the internet. (laughs)
0: No, it's 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 so interesting. Um, I want to talk about what you don't share because you do a great job of having this, you know, adult context of a lot of things from childhood. A lot of you know portraits of family, and even in your column, you're so generous with saying, mm. you know. I think everybody worries as a writer, like, do people care about me? And if you ever wonder, I desperately care about you. Like, the more you, <laughs> the more you give me a view, the more I love the writing. But Good. I imagine that there's a, a, you know, it's a process to figure out your own boundaries. And and has that something that's av- been, has it evolved over, over time? You know, just your comfort level.
1: I've sort of had to become very keenly aware that when I'm on the page, I can definitely be an overshare in as much as just like, I really don't care that much if I'm talking about something deeply vulnerable or deeply intense emotionally for me, because if I'm writing about it, it sort of means that I've settled on my narrative about it. Like I'm not one of those writers who I admire a whole lot who use writing as a tool for illuminating and understanding something that happened to them. So I know some people who in the process of writing through an experience they had, kind of gain new understanding of that experience and kind of use it as therapy in a way and they sort of work it out on the page. Um, If I'm writing about something, I I tend to think of it very much as like, I know what I want to make, I have a very specific shape in my head for how I want this to feel and look. And then I just sort of go about doing it because it's material to me in that way. Um, That being said, if I'm not writing about something, that means it is too much an active living thing in my brain. And so I tend to avoid those until I have figured out a way to think about it that makes me feel okay about it. Um, And it really lent itself to this book because this book is very much about like, here are the narratives i settled on for these really intense moments in my life. And here's how I would like to kind of reconfigure them or reshape them and how you could do that with some of your own stories that you tell yourself. It's very much a um, book about narratives and how we live and die by them and how humans just need narrative as a tool for understanding ourselves and the world around us. Um, So yeah, there's just a whole lot that I'm just not ready to write about yet. And I'm just so glad that I get to at some point write another book because um, I have since thought of some experiences that I was like, oh, I wish I'd made that a chapter.
0: We'll be back with more of my conversation with John Paul Brammer after a short break. Okay, we're back. Here's the rest of my conversation with John Paul Brammer, a fellow advice columnist and author of the new book, Ola Poppy, How to Come Out in a Walmart Parking Lot and Other Life Lessons. You beautifully write about Rebecca, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, a character you get to know as, you know, I I very much related to this young woman who you have a relationship with. Um, you know, I and, and it's framed in the idea of a letter, um, I can't remember the name of the letter writer at that point, but just, you know, sort of like there's that idea of, wait, I've wasted time of, of what if I spent too long with something that isn't really the thing. And obviously your relationship with Rebecca is not the thing. And, and not to give any spoilers away, but you do a beautiful job of, of talking about how all experiences are experiences. Right. And like Mm -hmm. the two of you kind of had a formative relationship, even if it wasn't an important romantic relationship in certain ways. And, um, you know, that's the kind of thing where I would imagine settling on that narrative. I can apply it to all different relationships in my life, that there is no uh-huh. a time that there was no quicker path to some sort of happiness. And, and, um, so I don't know, maybe this is just my way of thinking. No, um, it's, it's a, it is, seems to be a common question. And, and this segues into my, I need to ask the, what has your year of letters been like? Cause obviously I've read a bunch of them, but like, I don't know, for me, this is like, I'm like, this is a horrible, horrible year with so many difficult things and yes. forget about, you know, beyond global pandemic, there was an election, there were, I mean, and people to me seem to be like ready for some sort of internal truth. And, and I wondered what you saw in your inbox and how it differed from 2019.
1: Yeah. I have seen a lot of grief, um, a lot of grief that doesn't know that it's grief or isn't being called grief. Um, just things that, you know, so for example, like plans that people had for their lives, they got canceled and being really upset over that. And then asking me, is it even okay for me to be upset about that? Because, you know, other people are dealing with so much more. And, you know, also because I never did this thing, there's technically nothing to be sad about because it didn't happen. Um, But that is also loss, you know, the idea of really being excited to do something or to do something with your life that doesn't quite pan out or gets put on hold or gets taken away at the last moment. There isn't a threshold that needs to be met for you to be allowed to grieve, you know, you don't have to justify why you're feeling sad or if you even should feel sad or if you've experienced enough loss in the first place to even feel what you're feeling in that moment it's okay to feel that and it's okay to work through that and to accept that, yeah, actually right now I am dealing with the fact that I've lost something. Um, And for some people that's taken on really intense um, situations like actually losing a loved one or losing a family member or losing a living arrangement, a roommate. um, Not always through death either. Sometimes just, you know, distance and isolation. These things take their tolls on relationships sometimes of all kinds. And I have... (laughs) I've really been struggling to find the right answers for all of those because while I have answered some, like, you know, being single during the pandemic and how hard that's been for some people, um, falling out of friendships during isolation, some of them I'm just like, yeah, you know, we're just in a tough time. (laughs) It's not great, um, but we need to be kinder with ourselves and allow ourselves to feel sad about things and to actually feel like we've lost something because you can't just go around pretending that it's fine just because you didn't die. (laughs)
0: Right. I mean, are you getting some of the letters I, I get, oh, the, the most common letter I was receiving right before the pandemic was a dating fatigue of just like mm. the forever swiping and the, and, you know, sort of this like fatigue of just never quite taking enough time to be seen and to see and not quite, you know, just that intense knowledge that there are always more online and there are always more experiences. And I have heard from some people in letters that, the pace slowing down is making them want to do a better job connecting now and or, or even taking it easy on themselves that like, if they're not dating for five minutes, that's okay too. Or sleeping with somebody for five, that's, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't know. I mean, is there anything hopeful about how humans will connect as they come out of their bubbles.
1: And... Yeah. You know, there are silver linings and everything. And I noticed that. So I thought I was going to be super awkward once I started socializing with people again. I was like, this is going to be so uncomfortable. I've forgotten how to act. Um, and to an extent that is true. But what I've also found is that living the past year, the way I have lived, it has at least lowered the stakes a little bit. So if my conversation isn't going great, if there are some awkward bumps and bruises along the way, I have kind of given myself more room to be okay with that. It's like, you know, this conversation being awkward isn't going to be the end of the world. It doesn't mean that like I'm bad at socializing. It just means that, you know, we're just people and it's actually such a privilege and such a great feeling right now just to be in contact with someone (laughs) like that on itself. is great. Um, Yeah, it's actually taught me to just give myself a little bit more room to not be perfect all the time with other people because none of us are. And I remember how I used to be before the pandemic with my conversations where I was like, oh my God, I'm crashing and burning with this person. This is horrible. They're thinking all these terrible things about me now, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, now I'm like, I don't care. I'm, I'm glad I'm out of my house. Right. <laughs> this You're is great. <laughs> yeah, this is fine.
0: Right, this is, this is
1: fine. Right.
0: <laughs> this is, yeah. Uh, and and some questions are starting to, to come in. So I'll, I'll ask a few and, and please everyone, if you have a question, absolutely drop it in the Q&A. Uh, someone asks, can you tell us about the book design? How did you arrive at the cover? And this is like, listen, it's living. In my house. <laughs> and I, I love that it's living in my house. So, so tell us about it.
1: Yeah, so I'm definitely a very visual person. Um, I run a print shop and I make art as well. And so I had, yes, I did that one, the peacock. It's one of my favorites. Um, I had a very set idea for what I wanted it to be. Um, part of it was inspired by the original Olapapi art by Felix De Jong, who did it when I was at Conde Nast. He's a Mexican queer artist who <laughs> drew me in a sombrero at a typewriter in cowboy boots and a jockstrap, and it was such a fun illustration. And it has lived in my mind rent free. I want that illustration from Conde Nast so badly. Um, they have the rights to it still, but I wanted to sort of go off that. And so when I was getting the brief for what I wanted, I picked the color. I said, I want certain chapters to have their own symbols on the cover of the book. So we have like the comet, we have the rabbit, we have the oak leaf um, kind of present around it because I really enjoy the idea of boiling things down to one visual, um, symbology sort of, just because I'm an artist and that's just how I appreciate things. Um, And then when the art came back, it was by this Spanish artist named Sonia Polido who lives in a fishing village outside of Barcelona, which is a fact I'm so obsessed with. Like this woman doesn't know that I've illustrated her entire life in my head. I'm just like, oh, she's in her shack today. And she's just like drawing something. Um, love Sonia Polito. Yeah, when I saw it, I was like, yes, perfect. Okay, good. That's what I wanted. Um, and I'm happy they were able to do it because I know that the brief I gave them felt like a lot. I, I, I was like, I want this. I want that. It needs to look like this. But at the end of the day, I care a lot about visuals. I'm a visual thinker, I'm an artist, and I wanted a pretty book.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I imagine an artist talking to an artist is very different than somebody yeah. like being like, what if it was a chair? Which is always like, what if it was... Just- <laughs> no. But I want to talk about the art, because obviously I have... I consume your art, and um, it has been a pandemic companion for me. What well, You know, the world shut down, and I was like, it's just me. I need to look at something nice. Um, yeah. And... I wondered what kind of therapy it gave to you to to have a different piece of your work and brain very much appreciated. I mean, I, I saw a lot of people online being like, no, I got this and it's over my bed or, oh, I got this. And it's, you know, it felt very, yeah. it's nice as a writer to see some of another writer excel in this totally other way and be creative in this. It, it, it's really cool.
1: It's really fun for me, too, because I originally wanted to be an artist. Um, At some point, I just chose writing, and I don't remember what my rationale was. Um, Writing just feels more immediate and accessible to me because all I need is just like a piece of paper or a document, and I can go. Whereas, arts requires tools. (laughs) Um, It requires a lot of different things and accoutrements and a way of thinking. Um, But... I always loved art. I always wanted to get back to it. And now that I'm able to actually make art after years of practice, because I always had the idea for art in my head. It was just that my actual skills never quite matched up with what I wanted to make, which is a very deeply frustrating place to live (laughs) when you want to create something, but you just can't make it. It's a very aching, yearning kind of feeling. Um, So I was already sort of drawing before the pandemic. I had a little shop where I was selling things here and there. Um, But it wasn't until the pandemic really set in that I had all this time to myself. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to have to draw through this whole thing. Um, And that's really where I started grinding, putting in um, YouTube tutorials, trying to figure out how to make the things I wanted to make, the dimensions for everything, um, what kind of prints I wanted to do, what I wanted the visuals to really say. Because my brain already worked that way. It was just that I couldn't put it out into an actual paper project page thing. Um, So once I had that, my life really opened up again. I was just like, wow, I can make things. Um, It's very freeing, very, it's a very liberating feeling that I had. Um, And I still do to this day because I used to use it for an insomnia tool. When I couldn't sleep, I would draw until I fell asleep. Um, But now it's become very much more of a job. (laughs) So I can't do it in bed anymore, (laughs) which is the only drawback.
0: Good. I, I want to talk about another kind of writing, which is fiction,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: um, embracing fiction now more than ever, perhaps. Or is that? Can we expect more fiction from you um, in subsequent writing? I know this is very nonfiction. But... Yes,
1: um, I really do believe that my next book is going to be fiction, just because um, I in, I really enjoy hopping around between mediums and the way I do things, and. Um, if I would grant myself one flex about Ola Poppy, the book, it's that I think sometimes my unhinged social media personality and the fact that it is based in a internet product, like an advice column leads some people to underestimate the literary quality of the sentences and the way I describe things and the way I write. And so I kind of want with this next book to just lean into that a little bit more and see if people take me a little bit more seriously (laughs) because I know I can write um, in that way. I'm a very descriptive, illustrative writer. Um, So I want to try fiction. I want to try bringing prose to the forefront uh, with my next book. And I think that that's a good way to do it. And I have an idea in mind for what I want it to be about and how I want to write it. Um, and I'm just so excited to pursue it because I haven't been able to do fiction this whole time because I've been working like three jobs at once in the freelance economy.
0: <laughs> well, you have this great, uh, moment in, in the book where the irony, you, you need a certain, you need a good descriptive word.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You need a good descriptive word, uh, for a dick. And, yeah. um, and you're, you the the wonderful irony of writing so beautifully on the sentence level about not being able to find a word that is beautiful and good enough was mm-hmm. just absolutely tickled me because you know, <laughs> if if people only know you from twitter or um even from a shorter column right like like this is a beautifully written book i mean it's it's really why going through it again a second time was so fun to be able to really look at, at sentences, mm-hmm. and to poke fun at, like, just needing the word, um, and I won't give away <laughs> what word you come up with, because I was like, bravo, bravo like,
1: you, you did literally. it, yeah,
0: I started thinking of, like, what are all the ways I would describe a dick, like, like, you word. begin, as a writer, that was just, like, a real good afternoon activity for me, one day, so,
1: difficult. um, that was some of the most difficult writing I've ever done, uh, for context, for anyone who hasn't read the book, I was taking writing assignments from this mysterious twink in Prague, having to do, like, gay porn recaps for a while because i needed to make rents and it was so hard because this is the interesting writing challenge that was posed to me with this um format of job i had to write something that was erotic but not so erotic that the writing itself became porn it had to be a gateway to watching the porn but it couldn't be entirely sexless either so it was just like you had to walk this super fine line like on a technical level Harder than anything I've ever had to do in, like, s- formal media. <laughs> like, harder than any NBC um, journalism assignment or essay for Condé Nast I've ever written. Because I was just like, how do I make this thing hot without taking it too far or without it being too straight-laced? <laughs> um, difficult. <laughs> difficult,
0: difficult. And, it, it just, I, you know, I'm a big romance novel reader. So, of course, I'm always interested in, like, the idea of there are only so many ways to say xyz and and right uh, get around that right um but it, it's just such a funny moment and and I'm <laughs> so forward to, to fiction you write um and again i'm going to say you know we're going to wrap up soon so please if you have a question put it in but i want you know at, at the heart of this like there's so many people i'm going to buy this book for again graduates um family uh literally anyone in my life who has ever like known another human because at the <laughs> end of the day, this is about like how humans interact with each other. And I think this book is actually a gift to come out now because we're all sort of figuring this out. Like you yeah. said, it, it's, it's like, kind of, is like a nice hug for figuring it out. Uh, although, yeah. and recontextualizing the life you lived up to now. Um, but at the heart, there are a lot of people who are going to buy it and love it because they love advice columns. And everybody always wants behind the scenes stuff. I always like yeah. to know, when do you answer the column? Do you play music? What beverage do you enjoy, if any? Like when you put the Ola Poppy hat on, can you give us a picture so we don't have to, yeah. like, you're, like you with your illustrator, imagine a whole thing.
1: When I place the sombrero on my head.
0: Yes, um, So so delicately.
1: First of all, if I'm writing at all, I am caffeinated out of my mind. I don't know what it is, if that like actually leads itself to better writing or if it's just a placebo effect at this point, but I have to be drinking coffee when I write. I don't know. It just makes me feel like I'm ready to go. I'm raring to write something today. I've got my cold brew on deck. going to chug it right in Olapapi. Um, usually, I do have music playing, but... <laughs> I prefer to be in coffee shops, which I haven't been able to do in like a year plus now. Um, I find that like that dull hum of creative productivity behind me really helps me to work on my own stuff because I'm like, okay, I'm on the same page as other people who are just working on our little things right now. Feels really good. Um, I've been trying to trick myself into being in a coffee shop while inside my apartment for the past year, which has not been entirely successful. I've just been like playing random albums on my speakers, an album that I think would play at a nice coffee shop that I would go to. Um, I open up a letter. And if the answer is just sort of singing to me, I'll go for it. But I never force myself to answer one. Sometimes I'll be halfway through and I'm like, you know what? (laughs) I have nothing to say. (laughs) This is just a screwed up situation (laughs) that you're in, dear reader.
0: Do you have any philosophies or theories on, like, why after all these years, you know, uh, uh, actually it was Anne Lander's daughter who once said to me, this is a good business to be in because people are going to, like, keep getting dumped. I mean, that's not exactly what she said. (laughs) Like, you know, like, the economy, the news, the whatever, like, people are going to, like, kind of be questioning and miserable a lot. So, um, but the fact that they turn to people who are often writers, journalists, thoughtful people, but not necessarily like mental health professionals. Right. Why does this, in whatever form it takes, remain as so powerful? I mean, you said it yourself, like you wanted to write something that was a spoof and people wrote to you earnestly very quickly. So why is that, do you think?
1: You know, I had a very similar thought process. I was like, you know, it's a really renewable resource, gay drama. (laughs) There will always be gay drama. I can always write about that. So I'm very much in agreement there. Um, as for why it remains so popular, I just think that there is a level of intimacy. There is a relationship that the writer and the reader have in an advice column that is just brought so front and center in other types of media, maybe not so. Like, most of the media we consume on any given day, when it comes to publishing anyway, is not directly responding to us. It's not our friend. It's not sitting next to us at the bar and talking to us. It is usually just, um... It exists in this other plane in the mind where it's like, okay, this is information or someone wrote something about some figure that's not me. It has It's not directly speaking to you. The advice column speaks directly to you. And that is such a novel, interesting thing for a piece of media to do. And the idea that you too, even if you choose not to, could write a letter to this person. You can almost imagine with their voice what they'd have to say. So when people write into you or when they choose not to write into you, I'm sure they either way are thinking like, but I know what she would say to this situation because they know your voice. <laughs> um, and that is such a cool dynamic that really doesn't replicate itself very often in other types of media. It's just sort of like, I know for a fact that there are people who would like to write a letter to me, but just haven't. And I think that still they know like, oh, this is what Poppy would say <laughs> if I wrote in. Well,
0: when you get one from, like, basically blonde in Boston, you'll know <laughs> that i am broken down and it's happening. So um, we we do have another uh, question yes. that I want to get to before we wrap up. Um, I really like how you talked about the fluidity of narratives and how you're constantly recontextualizing your own memories. Have you recontextualized, recontextualized, reshaped any of the stories in Ola Poppy since the book was published? And I know you've only had a few days, but I'll tell you, doing a media tour pretty quickly probably... Reformats a lot in your brain pretty quickly,
1: right? Well, I would say that the bare fact of Corey reaching out to me and not taking offense to the way he was written and not being upset with me for telling that story did somewhat recontextualize how I thought about the way I told it. <laughs> because I was just like, why did I assume that he was going to be so upset here? Um, Why did I think I maybe didn't have a right to tell this story? And I thought it was this dirty, naughty thing I was doing behind someone's back that I was just like, Oh, I'm going to just, I I have to write this because it happened to me and it was super important, but I almost wish I didn't have to, because it makes me anxious to think that this person could respond to it or read it or be upset with me. Um, And I sort of had to think like, okay, so what are my priorities when I'm writing a story? Like, is it to tell the whole truth and to say it the way I want to say it? Or am I also factoring in repercussions that I don't want to happen? Am I sort of cushioning things too much? Um, It made me think like, (laughs) what if you actually treated me worse than I remember and you're just relieved (laughs)
0: <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, you know, this uh. is not a, a person who comes off so... Bu- I mean, with them you, you write him with great empathy, but he doesn't come off... But, yeah, maybe he... maybe the, And and I and it's very telling that, look, the book has been out how long? And he's already read it.
1: Yeah. And this idea that he was sort of this, like, dumb jock who didn't truly understand what he was doing to me. I'm like, what if you did? <laughs> what yeah. if you did know what was going on? So it's just, like, those weird questions that pop up. Um, but I knew that stuff like that would happen because... Like I say in my book, these stories are constantly shifting with our own understanding of ourselves and the new context we're given. So I I tried to build in enough flexibility into the book so that if I change my mind with how I saw them over time, that's okay. Because the central theme of Olapapi is we're constantly changing our minds about the stories we tell ourselves. And there's so many different ways to tell them. Um, That was my little security blanket (laughs) for the whole project, I think
0: yeah, I mean, listen, you get to write your own essays, you get to you get to decide when to start and stop and, and exactly I constantly, constantly exactly. I mean, you mentioned this earlier, just about this year of grief and I, and I want to put a, a button on this because I think a lot of people who are turning to advice columns right now are younger people um, who feel like they've lost a chunk of time, um, and feel bad that they feel bad. And, and you have a great letter recently about that, right? Like somebody misses graduation and they're like, am I even allowed? Right. But, um, I've talked to a lot of college classes recently and it's always these kids in masks and they're like, I, we're not even supposed to make out with each other. You know, and I'm thinking (laughs) that was a a formative time for me when I was dating, right. And so, you know, what would you tell a 21 year old right now who's saying, but, wait a minute, you know, I, I've lost experiences. I've lost time. I've lost, you know, th- there's, there's still that narrative that that part of life is so important. And, you yeah. know, I think I once looked in the median age of the podcast listeners I have are like, really like in their late 20, like they're young to me in my forties. Yeah. Like they're much younger people who also feel like they've lost time. What would you say to, to someone who's feeling frantic right now about that?
1: Yeah. I would say that loss has its own lessons to teach you. And they are lessons that not everyone actually learns in life and you now have. (laughs) And you actually get to carry those lessons with you into a life that you're returning to. And I think there's a lot of joy in that. There's a lot of wisdom that you gain from that. There's nothing fair about it. In an ideal world, it never would have happened that way. But now that it has, (laughs) you can at least hold all the knowledge that you glean and all the wisdom that you glean from this really difficult time. Um, And I think that goes for people of any age, really, because, I mean, I think a lot of us were just like, oh, man, I was supposed to be this kind of person this year and I didn't get that opportunity. Um, When we lose opportunities like that, it just doesn't feel good. And I know no one really wants to hear like, but at least you learned some Bible lessons or built character because, you know, that's horrible. (laughs) It doesn't make you feel better. But like most things that are true, it's cliche, (laughs) Um, you learn a lot about yourself and you learn by experiencing things like that and it's going to be all right.
0: (laughs) That's well said. (laughs) Um, I want to tell everybody who is listening to this in the form of a podcast, uh, to buy the book, um, because it's so good. And if you love advice columns, you will love this. And if you love, love, you will love this. And again, buy it as a gift, even if you've already bought it because that's what we do, and buy from Brookline Booksmith because Please. we support our indies. Um uh I I I want to thank you because um again, like you're the advice columnist I turn to. And I, I had actually come up with a rule of like, I don't think I need to read advice columns anymore because my brain is going to break, right? Right. Um, and I have had to cheat. Just, I've had to drop the rule altogether uh, with your column because it's such an absolute beautiful treat and um, you give so much of yourself and it is deeply appreciated. So I just want to say congratulations also because finishing a book and putting it out in the past year is a feat. It's <laughs> not like, while you're doing all this promotion I hope there's some some great celebration that you're having and that you've taken a minute to be like, yeah, I totally did this.
1: did it, I wrote something, yes. Um, Yes.
0: So, so beautifully done. And I want to thank everybody for coming tonight and, and the Wilbur and Brooklyn again for, um, for putting this on. This is a weird time to release a book into the world. and Yes. (laughs) um, So those who've read it and love it, tell your friends and feel free to tweet one word. Descriptions of a certain body item. If you come up with oh, I <laughs> I the answer. rest of my life, I'm going to be like just coming up with adjectives. <laughs> um, and uh, is there anything else? Oh, and for those who don't know, what is the best way to find the column?
1: Oh yes. So right now, my column is being syndicated on The Cut, but it also exists on Substack at OlaPoppy.substack.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at JP and Instagram. So you know. Thank you so much for coming, and Meredith, thank you so much for having me. I just love, love, love your column as well, and what a time. (laughs) What a time.
0: I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And remember, I wrote a book, too, about love letters. It's called Can't Help Myself, Lessons and Confessions from a Modern Advice Columnist. I highly recommend reading it with the Ola Poppy book. They make a very sweet pair and holiday gift and book club discussion. And stay tuned for the next season of Love Letters, coming soon. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith does our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As I mentioned, Love Letters is also an advice column, so send your love and relationship questions to loveletters at boston.com or online at loveletters.show. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening.